Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We should probably dim the lights for this. I think we should. <laughs> for this particular discussion. Um, we decided that we're not going to use the word, any, we're not going to use any, any words like hard, <laughs> penetrate. <laughs> what else did we agree on? I, I forgot that conversation. I'm, I'm all embarrassed because I know nothing about what we're talking about. So it's, this, oh, is all just, sure. this is all just um, academic for, from my standpoint. Um, so... Alex and Cruising got a wonderful review today in the, the San Francisco Chronicle, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we read a little something, or before you read a little something, I was wanting to first get a sense of how this came about. Uh, I, I learned at dinner that um, your publisher came to you with, with a, a proposal, and then it sort of took on a life of its own. And maybe talk a little bit about how it's this interesting mixture of uh, memoir and history and sort of socio-political commentary. Um, yeah, no, thanks everyone for being here too. I know it's a, it's a Friday at 7.30 in LA, so a lot of you had to fight traffic to get here and I really appreciate it. Um, and there's a lot of friends in the audience, a lot of people that I know and love, uh, and, and always reading at Skylight. Is, is all, it's, it's always been such a wonderful experience. It's and there's some seats down the front if there anyone... There are seats. Don't be, don't be afraid. Um, nobody bites unless you want them to. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, I was writing this novel, actually, um, uh, about a family of, of uh, Mexican wrestlers, um, Mexican luchadores, and um, one of the characters in the book... Uh, is uh, a college student, and he's having a hard time um, making ends meet, and um, he resorts to to having to, um, you know, uh, solicit uh, for sex for for money, and I sort of I was dealing sort of in the in the realm of of cruising and hooking up when um, around the time uh, unnamed my press put out a great book called Arcade. Right. And um, I read it, and I reviewed it for the Los Angeles Review of Books, and I really loved it. And that sort of started this conversation with Olivia and Chris uh, about the possibility of maybe doing something um, like this. And they sort of asked me, like, have you ever thought about you know, writing uh, some of this? And I thought, no, because I'm too chicken. I usually, that's why I write fiction, because uh, it's easy to sort of to say, well, it wasn't me, it was my characters. And, and so Olivia and Chris were kind of giving me permission, I think, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways to write, uh, you know, to take a look at this and, and um, encouraged me to write about my own experiences. Mm-hmm. And so it, it kind of was a happy accident. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it sort of evolved into this, this long conversation uh, about uh, this practice uh, as a um, you know political act, uh, you know for the gay community to sort of resist and 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 revolutionize, and um, that's kind of how it evolved. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so has it been kind of scary that because it is in many ways there's some intimate personal stories in there yeah. that are melded with the bigger picture political stuff and the, and the history of cruising, which is really interesting. I mean, we go from from Greece to Griffith Park to Grinder mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and can you, can you talk a little bit about that, that sort of trajectory and, and how you chose to tackle it from all these different perspectives? Well, I think, you know, I mean, I, I met my partner. Um, he doesn't like me to call him. What, do I, what am I supposed to call you, Kyle, again? Uh, not husband. Um, you're, you're not husband. My not husband. Uh, uh, actually, online. I met him online in 2000, back in 2000. And it was on gay.com. 
Yeah, okay. So, yeah, you remember gay.com, right? Yeah. That's like old school, so right? So quaint. Yeah, it was really quaint. And that was like back, back when, like, you know, you didn't tell anyone that you met someone online. Um, and, and so my whole experience, you know, with sort of this, this, this culture of hooking up and um, has always been um, uh, sort of looking at it from not just you know, the past, but, but also from, from a sort of more technical uh, current um, mm -hmm. uh, sort of culture. You know, I, I, lo it, I love the idea it, of the, tech, the technical aspects of hooking up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, because the, the, the sort of transformation from being out in the world, d accomplishing that, and then this whole digital thing is really an amazing, in our lifetime, I mean, it's changed the whole nature of that for, for a generation. It has. And yet traditional cruising st still continues. It still continues, it still continues. But I think we have a, a generation now that's sort of looking at it more as, um, it's kind of like Uber, you know what I mean? Like Uber like, or Lyft. Like, like, like fast and available? Yeah, it's just sort of like, it's convenient, right? Uh -huh. like, like you don't have to leave, you can order in, you don't have to leave the house? Well, you this? have to leave your house, but it's just like, <laughs> You Not can sort of orchestrate it, right? Like, uh -huh. I'll be here at mm -hmm. this time, mm -hmm. right? Or, or I'll leave the door open. I'll yeah, or I'll I'll leave the door open. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we're, we're digressing. Um, would, um, <laughs> Are <laughs> um, we? I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe you could read the, the, that opening. Do you want, okay. Opening sweep would be a, a, a good start before we go down the hill entirely immediately. Okay. So I'm going to read the prelude. You have to practice patience when you cruise. You need to be alone for long stretches, often looking for something that isn't always there. It takes time to cultivate this skill. It takes time to learn how to identify the cracks, to see the openings, to recognize the breaks and tears that exist in the ordinary. It's meditative. The driving around and around in circles, past the same spot, the watching, the waiting, it teaches you how to be still in the moment, how to feel earth spinning on its axis, how to sense the gravitational pull of the ground beneath your feet. In those moments of feeling and being anonymous, fleeting as they were, I learned about patience and perseverance. It reminds me a lot of writing. Both require a level of isolation, of quiet solitude. Both ask to reach deep inside, to look inward, to sit with your memories and thoughts while everything hurls forward and you wonder, what is the pursuit all about? What will be revealed at the end? How will the color of things change when one comes out of the journey? It's a moment that captures something unnameable, but it feels crucial for survival. It's an impulse so strong that it boils the blood. It alters time and reality and sense. And the only way you get better at it at both is by returning to it, by doing it over and over again and again. Cruising taught me how to cultivate a sense of confidence. I learned how to walk a little more slowly in the world. I learned how to watch and wait for the revelations, for the climax, if you will, to come. Cruising made me right. Hmm. Thank you. And I, I'm fascinated by that statement, cruising made me right. And I'm wondering if you could reveal some more about, about that nexus between the experience of cruising and, the, and your discovering writing. You know, I, I grew up in a house, um, I'm the youngest of 11. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> it's a lot, I'm the youngest. And um, I didn't have my own bedroom, so my bedroom was uh, the living room. Um, I slept out on the couch, and a lot of my uh, growing up, I, I didn't have my own space. I didn't have a place to sort of call and claim as my own. And so in a lot of ways, I, I think I turned to literature and writing because it provided me an opportunity to escape, right? Um, it gave me an opportunity to sort of, you know, exist in another world uh, away from, you know, my crazy family and a lot of the drama that was going on there. And, and I think in a lot of ways, the, the experiences that I had 
um, you know, going out, cruising, meeting men, um, sort of identifying and finding those, those sort of cracks in society that, you know, you have to slip into and out of um, was kind of the same thing, right? That solitude, um, you know, sort of finding that subculture and sort of being able to slip into it and out of it whenever I wanted. I think there was power in that for me. Uh, and it gave me an opportunity, I think, to understand uh, my place within the larger world a little better, mm -hmm. right? Because, I mean, I, I you know, I, I wasn't the most confident person. I mean, I grew up with a disability, and I grew up poor and Mexican, and there was had a lot of strikes against me, right? And and so, you know, here was an opportunity for me to get attention. So right? in that environment, there was a kind of currency that you... Yeah. You, carried, you carried with you. And so it seems as though your early experiences were kind of positive, which I think isn't perhaps, perhaps everyone's early experience in those environments. And you talk about how that early um, good experience, and maybe we can, in a minute we, we can read that little scene where, yeah. where you talk about that. Um, just set that up for us a little bit and tell us about how the positive nature of that experience sort of set you on a trajectory of... Um, embracing that world and embracing yourself yeah. in a way that you might not otherwise Well, have. I mean, that, that came at a time when I was feeling really, really, really terrible about myself. How, right? old, how old were you? I was, I was 16. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was, it was a pretty bad time. I mean, I was physically, you know, I was um, uh, dealing with my hair loss, my alopecia, which is kind of funny because on Vermont and Sunset, mm -hmm. Uh, that big Kaiser building that's mm -hmm. on the corner, that was my dermatologist's office. Uh -huh. And I remember as a kid sitting up on the very top floor um, and looking out and seeing, um, always, I, I used to always to love to look out the window and I used to look out and see Griffith Observatory all the time. Uh -huh. So every time I drive up here, that's uh -huh. the first thing I think about. But you know, I mean, that, that was a really bad time. Um, Is it alopecia, there are different, to, you have totalis or universalis? Universalis. The whole shebang. The whole thing. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah, okay. And, um, and, and so that was a particularly dark time, I mm -hmm. think a difficult time for me. I was in high school, I wasn't doing so well. And you were in La Puente still? Yeah, I was in, I was in the San Gabriel Valley, mm -hmm. living with my family. And it was my, my first time, um, um, I had a job, my first job. I was working retail, I worked at the mall. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just happened to be sitting on a bus, you know, at the bus, waiting for the bus to get mm -hmm. my paycheck. And this guy drove up. Mm -hmm. Do you, you want to read that? Do you want to read yeah. that scene? Okay, I'll read this section. So, um, so yeah, I think that's, all, that's really much all, all you need to know about this section. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to reveal what happens after, right? but I think y'all know, <laughs> right? I was 15 and sitting on a bus stop on my way to the mall to pick up my paycheck. I worked at a retail store that sold novelty gifts, greeting cards, stuffed animals, bags of potpourri and large ceramic masks of jesters and crying clowns that people bought to hang on their walls. That particular summer was especially hot, even for the Sangiro Valley. I was in shorts and high tops, and despite the heat, I also wore a thick gray sweatshirt and a flimsy baseball cap. I always wore long sleeves and hats back then. These were part of my armor, how I deflected attention from the imperfections I was born with, a birth defect that had stunted the development of my right arm, and the growing bald patches across my scalp from alopecia that left tan spots shaped like small continents on my head. There was a portable cassette player clipped to the elastic band of my shorts, and I was too busy rewinding the tape to the beginning of the boy with the thorn in his side, it was the 80s, um, <laughs> to see the, not in a sort, of, I, I, I sort of ironic kind of way, 80s, but like the actual 80s. <laughs> there was a white Hyundai Excel hatchback pulling up to the curb a few feet away from where I sat. I noticed it the second time though, because the driver got out, walked around, and pretended to inspect the back tire. He wore bright teal shorts, Reeboks, and a tight black muscle shirt. His hair was dark brown and long, glistening with mousse and hairspray that I could smell from my place on the bench. On the third drive-by, he stopped again, 
reached across the passenger seat and rolled down the window. Do you want a lift? He asked. I don't mean this to sound overly simplistic, but I came of age during a weird time in American history. I guess everyone thinks that though. I've often said that the 1980s were particularly challenging for a closeted Mexican kid with a disability. The decade saw the rise of the new right, of Reaganomics and tax cuts for the wealthy, and of a culture that rewarded success and greed, which led to a decade of excess, extravagance, yuppies, individualism, increased isolation, xenophobia, and a rise in cocaine use. It was an era of too much, of straight edges and crisp lines, of big shoulder pads and nagel prints with geometric shapes. The zeitgeist failed to consider the way in which want is tied to balance of perfection, the, the value we place on symmetry and excess in relation to desire. My flaws and my imperfections stood out, even in my working class environment where people struggled to make ends meet, where fathers worked in cavernous factories around deadly solvents and dangerous machines that could crush legs and sever arms. Even greater threats like famine, disease, and nuclear annihilation from the Soviet Union loomed on the horizon. And in the midst of this schizophrenic time, when we craved stability, as the world around us seemed to be inching toward apocalyptic destruction, I had my first sexual encounter and was introduced to a secret world. Mm, thank you. So, if you want to know what happened after, you have to buy the book. I'm just <laughs> um, it's interesting to me how, at some level, that was... Um, an important and positive experience. Yeah. And yet there's the other part of me that thinks about yeah. you're, you're 16 years old and you're being picked up by an older man. <laughs> and so there's this double-edged sword about, about cruising as being an empowering radical pastime and also yeah. being something that can lead you down the um, not necessarily the most um, positive path. So yeah. it, it depends... I think very much on the individual and the experience. Individual. And it's fascinating that you had that experience. And can you talk a little bit about, about that currency, like what you experienced being that kid with, and the power you felt in, that, in the, that world as you explored it more compared with the disempowerment you felt in your regular world? You know, I think, yeah, I think it's all, it's all it was all sort of corporeal, right? Like I, I could become someone else Mm -hmm. in those spaces um, because nobody cared whether I was disabled or whether I was Mexican or poor. Um, you know, the transaction that sort of happens mm -hmm. at that moment, I think is, um, you know, was worth something for me. Mm -hmm. It sort of taught me a little bit about um, my own um, limits and my capabilities. Mm -hmm. Were you aware uh, of trading in your youth? Not trading in, but trading... I mean, that your youth was um, another kind of currency at that time? Mm -mm. No, hmm. no. Um, you know, I, I mean, I was, I was, I always felt really bad. I guess everybody kind of does, right? Feel sort of... Like bad in a negative way or like, bad is a, a Michael Jackson? <laughs> <laughs> Both, uh -huh. you know? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I grew up Catholic and, and, you know, made to feel really bad about, like, any kind of sexual desire, uh -huh. right? Like we didn't talk about that. And you know, in my family, like we had a really difficult time sort of negotiating, you know, what sexuality is and was. And so, you know, I grew up with this really fucked up idea of what it, mm -hmm. what it was to be a male and what it was to be, you know, sexual. And, you know, my, my family was very, very, very anti-gay and, mm -hmm. You know, I had to hide a lot of it, and I, you know, not only was I sort of in the closet for that, but I was also in the closet, you know, because of my disability, right? Mm -hmm. I was hiding that. Um, and I think in the cruising spaces, when I had those opportunities and those interactions, there was no hiding. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I could be who I wanted to mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there was a kind of, um, it was refreshing. You know, right. it was it was empowering and it made me feel good mm -hmm. because it didn't matter to them, mm -hmm. you know, who I was. It just what mattered to them was the, the exchange that moment, right? It reminds me of the the John Ritchie 
quote you use in the, yeah. in the opening. The promiscuous homosexual is a sexual revolutionary. Each moment of his outlaw existence, he confronts repressive laws, repressive morality, parks, alleys, subway tunnels, gar garages, streets. These are the battlefields. Um, and I'm wondering also, did you, did you share those early experiences with anyone or did you carry those, that secret life sort of created a yeah. world of its own? I carried it, like, mm -hmm. I didn't share it with anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we, one of the things that we used to do when I was growing up and you know, when I finished high school um, was you know, we, in the Sangira Valley, like everybody, we would all get, pile up into cars and go to West Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Right, like that was the thing that that you did if you were Latino and you were gay and you were in the closet, like mm -hmm. you went to West Hollywood. And um, I talk a little bit about this in the right. book is that, you know, I was always like the one that my friends, of all my friends, I was the one that was never like, you know, hit on or picked up, mm -hmm. right? Because because of my disability, mm -hmm. and and so I was always really shy and really awkward in that in those in those spaces, um, and it made me feel uncomfortable. Um, I felt very insecure. It sort of heightened that insecurity. Mm -hmm. And um, when I discovered these other spaces, um, I kind of felt like it was a secret that I wanted mm -hmm. to keep to myself, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like I didn't want to share it with anyone. Um, in, in cruising, Alex explores these personal stories. And as you're speaking, I always feel this when I'm with you, this this vulnerability and intensity, and it's, I'm always very touched by you. So I really Aww. appreciate that part Thank of you. that part of, of what you've written. But then you also explore the history yeah. of, of cruising throughout the ages. And um, can you talk a little bit about the researching of that and um, and some particular things you learned about that? For example, I learned that there was um, there were early AIDS. Uh, likelihoods in the 1920s in the yeah. Congo, yeah. stuff like that. There's a lot of that in the book that I didn't know about and really um, appreciated learning. Anyway, just yeah. if you'd like well, to go with that. I'm sure, I mean, for you it's the same thing when you write fiction, right? You you know, the research is sort of what what we have fun with, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was spending a lot of time um, sort of looking at uh, at the history from antiquity until now, mm -hmm. um, you know, following leads. I, I couldn't have done it without is, Hannah's here, my research assistant. Hannah, hey Hannah. Hannah was my wonderful research assistant. Where did you find book. her? Olivia found her. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> it was kind of weird though because like I never had a research assistant, so I really didn't know what to have I Hannah I've look seen for. Her in, I think I've seen her in Griffith Park. Have you really? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to tell Hannah to look for, right? So mm -hmm. it was kind of weird, but, but um, uh, we kind of got over it, right? We figured it out. Um, you know, it was, it, for me, it was really fascinating. And I think one of the things that, that the research really um, was able to unearth was um, despite so much, um, you know, so many laws, um, so many, uh, 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 so much, um, uh, you know, so many edicts and uh, that the practice of cruising has continued, right? Mm -hmm. It survived mm -hmm. decade after decade, right. uh, which was really empowering and, and really wonderful. And I think one of the things that I, I always tell people um, to do with this book is to sort of look beyond mm -hmm. uh, the idea of it just being about sex, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of sex in the book, but I think it's, it's also about... Um, a community finding uh, an opportunity uh, to create the space despite mm -hmm. uh, so much legislation uh, aimed at stamping out that mm -hmm. community, right? Be because in places, and you talk about, uh, where is it in Africa? You, you, Uganda. Uganda, where it's so repressive that those yeah, spaces Dennis, are the yeah. only places that people sometimes can congregate or not even right. congregate but sort of pass in these weird cruising yeah. environments. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the Uganda um, yeah, I had guy an you, you spoke with? I had a, an opportunity to talk to um, a um, gay rights activist in Uganda um, who was the, a good friend of David Kato who was like the first, considered by many the first openly gay man in Uganda 
And as everybody knows, Uganda has one of the most, like it's one of the most repressive places to be gay. It's really difficult. Um, it's dangerous. I think it's, it, was, it was voted like the most dangerous place in the world to be gay. And um, this guy, Dennis, um, I just reached out to him on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, I'm writing this book about cruising and, and I'm, I just wanna know what it's like to be gay and to hook up in Uganda. And he said, well, give me a call. And um, I called him and, and we talked and I said, so how does like, how do you do it? Like, how do you do it in Uganda? And, and he said, well, you know, you, you have to have a really tight knit group of, of friends. Um, and the only people that you can be intimate with is, mm. are the individuals in that group. Mm -hmm. And so it sort of shed light on this idea of how, how the culture of cruising can create community, right? Mm -hmm. And that these individuals have to be so closely connected to each other. Because right? in Uganda, I mean, the act of sodomy is punishable by death. By death, yeah. And, and, the, and we forget living here how many countries in the world are like that. And, you know, we're swanning around. Right. Um, doing whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, it's, it can be tough enough here, maybe, for those of us who grew up in the mm -hmm. you know, 70s and 80s, but, um, but we forget what our freedoms bring here. And, yeah. And I think the gay community here often forgets about what's going on in other parts of the world. You also looked at Russia. I did. I looked at Russia, and I looked at... Um, um, I talked to a, a, an artist, actually, who, um, who photographs um, a lot of... Uh, gay cruising sites in um, in Russia, and and there they call them plashkas, and uh, they're usually located near um, monuments of like old Soviet leaders, like mm -hmm. like Lenin, and like mm -hmm. and it's not like like some political thing, like ha, ah, we're gonna like fuck in front of the statue of Lenin, right? Like it's it's more because they're centrally located in parks, mm -hmm. right? And so you can, and then they're near trains, so you can. Take a train, get off, get off, <laughs> and then get back on the train and leave uh -huh. without anybody noticing uh -huh. you, right? Uh -huh. And so, you know, I had an extended conversation with him about, like, so, like, what led you to sort of put these two together? And I, I also had a great um, uh, conversation with my friend Danny Haudegi, who is um, an artist at Whittier College who looks at... Um, uh, he used the Damron address book, right? Mm -hmm. The the uh, which can, was like. The, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, the address book was like the. I guess it was like the um, grinder before grinder. I guess it was like a little book that um, was tiny enough to fit in your back pocket, right? And it listed all of the um, gay hotspots uh, across the country, uh, and so you can go and if you were in Arizona, you could find a bar. Um, you know, uh, it was a gay-friendly bar, and usually it had codes that told you what was available there. <laughs> um, and and so my friend Danny looked at um, he sort of his art uh, charts the trajectory of the openings and closures of a lot of the gay bathhouses in LA uh, during the AIDS crisis, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, so there were how many that went to how many? I don't know. Oh, you write it. You have it in the book. It's like there were so many. There were so many, and where's your research assistant? I don't know. There, Hannah, there, there, I don't were, there were like loads, that, and then there was suddenly just there a was handful. suddenly nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there mm -hmm. was suddenly a handful. Mm -hmm. And and his um his research his sort of um impetus for starting that was that project was because he was living in Silver Lake with his partner, and um this was during the Prop Eight um you know uh, drama uh, drama, and um. One of the one of the um, uh, the headquarters um, for anti prop eight, so mm -hmm. the good guys, um, was in Silver Lake, and it was in a former uh, bathhouse, mm -hmm. right? Oh, and so wow. he found out that it was a former bathhouse, mm -hmm. and sort of that was that was what sort of fueled him to to do this project mm -hmm. where he sort of does this digital map of uh, the opening and the closings of all of these mm -hmm. bathhouses, mm -hmm. and so there's I think. You know, I talked to a lot of individuals who um, are were finding ways to to sort of give these ephemeral places permanence, mm -hmm. right? And through that permanence, they gain a sense of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And and a, there was the curious case of of the Mansfield, Ohio Police Department situation, mm -hmm. also, 
-hmm. right? And this was in the 60s. I don't know if anybody knows how many of you know about this, but in the 60s, there was a bathroom in uh, Mansfield, Ohio, um, in the Mansfield Central Park, where um, the police caught wind of the fact that there were men engaging in sexual activity, and they installed uh, a two-way hidden camera to record um, all of these uh, experiences that these men were having. The comings and goings. The comings and goings, if you will. And, um, and then this artist uh, was doing research on it, found the, 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 re the actual reel and repurposed it for an art exhibition. And everybody got really upset because you know, it sort of was calling into the question the responsibility of art and, and um, um, you know, uh, um, whether, whether it's okay to um, exploit. exploit these people. So um, I reached out to, to the people that he was working with and I asked, well, where is this film being screened? Or, mm -hmm. um, and they actually sent me a link to it. Right? And so I watched it, the whole thing one night, and it's really fascinating and disturbing because and, you see a cross-section of mm. you know, men. It's old men, young men, white men, black men, mm. overweight, you mm. know, uh, working class, men in suits, all of them engaging in these very, very private mm -hmm. um, activities, mm -hmm. and it's all being recorded, mm -hmm. right? So that was that kind of shook me a little bit, mm -hmm. um, and it sort of was was leading into this whole idea of of surveillance, right? Because the apps and and mm -hmm. and a lot of the um, um, you know the uh, uh, like like websites like Grinder and are really calling into question, I think the because governments in places like Saudi India, Arabia and India are or Pakistan. are overseeing that and. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was a really, I mean, the research kind of led me down a, a bunch of really mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. interesting um, leads. And, you know, I think the, the, the difficult thing is always trying to pare it down and, like, mm -hmm. what, what right. story are you trying to tell, right? Because right? there was a lot of ways that I could have gone. Mm -hmm. um, what, but you do encompass an, a nice diversity of approaches to the, to the topic. Can you talk a little bit about cruising as a political act. I mean, you touched on this, but um, <coughs> in, in the book you explore that in, ver in various ways. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there something you'd like to add about, about the, the politics of cruising or the sort of the, the, the revolutionary, subversive <laughs> nature of that and whether it's, it sustains that in, in this day and age? I mean, Grindr doesn't seem very subversive particularly, but maybe it is in its way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I mean, it's weird because I, I was talking to a sort of younger generation and, you know, in, in doing research and I'd ask, like, so, like, do you cruise? And a lot of the younger, you know, uh, uh, gay people I talked to were like, what is that? You know, like, they don't even use that word anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was kind of this really weird disconnect but I mean, I do think it's you know it's still happening. Whether it's whether it's political in the same sense that 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 we know, uh, that's up for debate. But you know, I think it, it it is still happening. It is still occurring. But whether the, whether whether this new generation sees it as political or not is is another story, right? Um, I think that you know I I I see it as um, a way in which I think. Um, our community has resisted um, a lot of the um, the sort of larger and dominant um, ideologies that have been, f you know, enforced on us. Right? How we can, you know, like someone like George Michael, mm -hmm. right, was basically like, "Well, fuck you!" Like, yeah, I was arrested in a bathroom, and so what? Um, and then he wrote a song about it, right? right? As, as opposed to the old senator who was. Yeah, Larry Craig. With, of, of, of the wide stance. Right, the wide stance and the tapping foot, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I think I'd like, you know, I like to see it as, as, as something revolutionary in the sense that it's, it's existed for a long time and it, it still exists. And the, the more, my research has shown that the more you try to sort of regulate it and control mm -hmm. it, the more fire you give mm -hmm. it, right? And Just like any revolutionary act, I think. Yeah. 
I think of Larry Craig and I think of that, those straight men who are in those environments who are so repressed and so lonely and desperate um, is, a, is not a liberated state. Yeah. You know? and, and so there is that, there is the loneliness and the fear that permeates a lot of those experiences and, and environments. So for some, it's not a liberating no. time. Right. Um, and, and, yeah. and, and there are ramifications, obviously, around, yeah. around disease and, right. and arrest. So that this is this overarching fear that creates an intensity. And we talked a bit, little bit about this before. And that kind of intensity sometimes is hard to recreate in a, um, a regular relationship. relationship. Yeah. And yeah. so there's that desire to return and create that adrenaline, whatever right. that chemical changes that happens in that heightened right. state. Right, right. And I think it's, you know, the, a lot of the, because I interviewed a lot of men mm -hmm. um, who, you know, had engaged in it um, in various degrees. And, and yeah, for a lot of the men that I talked to, there was that sense of guilt, mm -hmm. uh, that sense of shame. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it was tied to religion. It was like, well, right. you know, I was raised you know, fundamentalist this, or, you know, super religious that, and I always felt really bad. I felt like, you know, something really horrible was going to happen to me. Um, so it was always sort of, in one way or another, tied to religion or family, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, you know it, it's interesting that despite a lot of time having passed for them and those mm -hmm. experiences, they still remembered mm -hmm. them so clearly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they could tell me the color of like the tiles in the bathroom, mm -hmm. right? They mm -hmm. could they could remember the smells of things. Mm -hmm. They could remember. So there's a certain they still hold on to a certain level of intimacy. Mm -hmm. That 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 sort of sensory, mm -hmm. um, heightened sensory perception is tied to a certain level of right. intimacy for them, right? And the question for me always is is are those um, anonymous encounters? I guess as kind of a sexual intimacy but it seems to me to be not necessarily a true intimacy. Because you say somewhere, like, you know, we, we go out to get fucked, but what we want is love, or you say something mm -hmm. to that effect. And I feel like that's often the bottom line. It's this sort of misdirection. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it, it, it... I mean, I don't want to be a downer. No, no, I think it can, I think it can be for some, right? Mm -hmm. But I think also for, for, for others, it's, it's an opportunity to sort of revel in... In what it in a kind of freedom, yeah, in a mm. in a kind of freedom, because mm. you have to think a little bit about, you know, uh, you know, Stonewall was, you know, Stonewall happened, and then, and then you had the '70s, and it was like, you know, no holds barred. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, everyone was out having sex and having fun, and then shortly thereafter, you had AIDS, right? Right. So a lot of that, that culture, I think, was 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 sort of, that lifestyle was kind of dampened because of that, and. And I think that a lot of, for a lot of men, that that fear kind of pulled them mm -hmm. away from it, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of you know the men I talked to, you know, r decided that they were going to remain celibate mm -hmm. rather than risk, mm -hmm. you know, catching something. Right. And and, and there also there are possibilities in cruising for non-physical connection. But getting, right. the, getting the job done, which right. to many people I think felt safer during that era than something more truly intimate. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. On that. On that note, um, I think we've gone on. We've gone on for a while. Have we gone on for a while? I, I have no idea. Um, I I haven't even asked half the questions I wanted to. But let's <laughs> let's now open it up for um, any questions. If anyone has a question to formulate um, or formulated, please ask it as a question. Mm -hmm. um, what did you find that was connected between those two that was not difficult, that felt natural between both? Did everyone hear that? Look, I think so. Yeah. Storytelling. Right? It's, it's all about, I think, you know, whether you're writing a novel or whether you're writing a piece of nonfiction, what's important is the way in which you're telling the story. Right? Um, how you assemble it. Um, what you want to say, um, I think that that's universal, right? I don't know about poetry because I don't write poetry. <laughs> but you write very poetically. 
What does that even mean? I don't know. When people say it that. always sounds good. You write poetically. Does anybody say you write prosaically, David? No. 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 Right? Um, um, any other questions? Some of my best friends are poets, so I'm not going to tell Yeah. You know, I, I looked at um, uh, Aaron Betsky, who um, is an, uh, an architect and has written a lot about, about um, public spaces and architecture and, and the queering of public spaces, right? And so one of the things he, he says about cruising spaces is that they have to be, um, the, the bathroom or the, the place that it exists in has to be in, in some way or the other sort of difficult to get to, right? Like it, it can't be a place that's like, like traversed by a lot of people, right? So there has to be a sort of, like you have to go out and seek it and find it, right? Um, and so I thought that was interesting, right? When, when I looked at some of the different locations and was able to sort of uh, analyze like, like where their position is, you know, in the store, right? In the Macy's, right? <laughs> Macy's is big. So but, next time but, you're in but, Macy's. For those of you who've come for some hints. Yeah. So it's, you know, the, the bathroom always has to be kind of away, right? It's usually like in the customer service section where you have to turn left or buy the women's shoes, right? Or the discount area, right? So there has to be some sort of inability for individuals by like the, the larger community to get to it, to it's, access it. It's so it. weird that the men's bathroom's always by the women's shoes. Ex isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah. It, it, I'm thinking you, you explore... Retchy and Edmund White, um, uh -huh. but then you, there's also that um, seminal book about um, tea room? cruising called Tea Room Train. Oh God, yeah, a lot of Humphreys. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? I oh mean, God, where do you want me to start? I don't know, but I mean, no one's ever heard of Tea Room Trade except. Has course. anybody heard of Tea Room Trade? Okay, oh yeah, my God. see, Look, I got lots of people everyone. in here. You talk about it in class, right, Beth? Yeah, it's a really. I don't even know where to start. Like, it's this sort of comprehensive look at, told in a very dry, very um, anthropological uh, way about, like, what it, what cruising is, like, what men do. There's, like, a description of, like, a glory hole. There's, like, a hole where a man sticks his penis through. You know, it's very clinical. But also, he, he was, you know... Um, uh, His name was Lord Humphreys. Lord Humphreys. L-A-U-D. Yeah. yeah. And he got in a lot of trouble because of the way in which he went about, you know, uh, getting some of his information and research is he didn't tell a lot of the people, mm -hmm. you know, that he was doing what he was doing. Sometimes he pretended to be, um, I don't remember what they called it, but like, he was like the lookout, right? Like when two guys would hook up in a bathroom, he'd be like, mm -hmm. I think they called it like lookout queen or mm -hmm. some like something stupid like that. So he'd be like looking and make sure that nobody walks in, mm -hmm. right? So he was undercover, but uh, he wasn't telling these individuals mm -hmm. what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So it's told in a very dry, a very uh, clinical uh, uh, yeah, way it's, that is. So, so weird and interesting. Yeah. Oh, I didn't have any of that. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it found me. It found me. And, um, and then once it found me, it was kind of weird. It was like this honing beacon that went off. Like suddenly it was like when I had that encounter, it was like suddenly there were all these other guys who were like, hey, like, <laughs> come yeah. here. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, you know, I think I gave off a scent after that, right? It was like some pheromone or something that suddenly guys were like oh shit like <laughs> go get them right yeah. and I was like sure I'll, let's do it um but I didn't really have no no it found me <laughs> mm. um I didn't have to um I had a pen pal in England who was gay right and 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 I think that like that was kind of a 
that was the one moment when I sort of tried to find it, right? But he was in England. That was, like, really far. <laughs> um, but, like, we would write letters, like, what do you look like? What are you wearing? You know, and it was kind of stupid. Um, and then my sisters would, like, why are you getting letters from a guy in England? So I'm like, I don't know, because I like Morrissey. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, we didn't really have any way to sort yeah. of... It just sort of found me, you and know. Then, and, and then once the sort of the green light gets turned on, the sort of a, that homing instinct. Um, then you know where to start looking over. for it, right? Mm. I mean, I have no idea myself. <laughs> um, any other questions? Notice how he sort of see see how he does that. Like, any other questions, anyone? <laughs> uh huh. Now. <laughs> I'm the only one, at least that I know of. No, I mean I think they, you know, they. I mean they know, right? But it, you know, growing up, it was it wasn't like, hey, I'm gay. Just so you know, like it just sort of happened, right? Like they're like, well, of course you're gay. Like you're like Madonna, right? Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, it just sort of happened. Um, and yet there's that Catholic veil over the family. Yeah, yeah, but a lot of families have that, don't yeah. they? Oh, like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of questions. Who do we go to, David? Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> um, I appreciate the stuff this guy about your family. I like that Yeah. I, you know, I, Hannah, we talked about this, didn't we? Like, maybe Hannah can talk a little more about this better because she's the one that did the research on that. There's like different approaches, right, to the way in which women cruise. Um, and it's not as anonymous, usually. As, as it is in the spaces with men. Um, uh, but it does happen, it's just kind of a different, I think it happens in a different way in different spaces, right? But it's not, it's really usually not anonymous in the way in which you and I think about anonymity, right? There's no understall things going on usually with women. There's an Ast a famous Australian swimmer who won a gold medal, whose name is escaping me, who actually did meet her life partner in a in a restroom. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Wow. I know. Which I, but I think that's unusual. I think it's usually at brunch. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, and yes. So it's kind of two questions under one umbrella of like class. So I was wondering if the class distinction was mostly in America, or if it like transcended to different countries for cruising. And I was curious also. You know, I think it's always been, um, I think it's, it's always been governed by certain rules and roles, right? Even if you look at uh, ancient Greece and Rome, there were certain individuals who were allowed to own slaves, right? Um, and, and there was the whole passive versus active role, right? The penetrator versus the, you know, penetratee or whatever. Um, so there's always, there's always been this sort of foundation of, of roles. Um, in terms of the, um, the sort of the, the, the socioeconomic um, labels, um, a lot of that, um, because my research was focused specifically on the U.S., um, you know, I sort of looked at a lot of, a lot of, a lot of that in the U.S., but there was some of that. Um, in the UK, like with cottaging, um, especially when you look at the Molly houses, right, the 18th and 19th century, a lot of those individuals were, um, were every strata of, of the sort of social ladder. Um, and so it, it does have, I think, its, its roots in, um, in this um, ability to sort of even out, I think, a lot of the, um, 
the playing field mm-hmm. uh, in terms of economics and in terms of who's represented and, and the roles in which they play. But there are still roles. It's important to remember that there are still definitive sort of parameters that, that you need to uh, exist within and operate within in order for it to, to continue. Mm-hmm. But, but even in your early experiences that you share in the in the book, it, there is sort of a transcending of class. Yeah. In in the cruising space yeah. in in the modern age. Yeah. 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 Any other questions? Just the last one. Like, what do you mean by trans-historical? Yeah. Well, not necessarily. Um, you didn't find, like, bathrooms where, you know, um, where men would hook up, right? Um, there were bathhouses, right? Um, but there, there weren't specific locations very much. Um, I think you start to see a lot more of that with the formation and the advent of cities, right? And city squares and, and, and um, places where people congregate, right? Um, like in France, um, in the UK, um, once cities start developing, I think certain spaces start, uh, are created um, that proliferate and allow for um, you know, these encounters to happen. It's interesting to note that with all of the, um, the changes that we're seeing in cities like LA and San Francisco, that a lot of the cruising spaces are being, um, you know, uh, you're starting to see them vanish because of gentrification, right? So suddenly you have these restrooms and parks where, um, you know, families didn't live before, right? And suddenly, Families are starting to move in, and the park becomes a different space, and mm-hmm. that bathroom no longer is, um, you know, uh, d- doesn't allow for that kind of um, uh, interaction to happen, right? So you're starting to see some of it change a little bit, um, but you know those spaces still exist. Uh, I think as long as there are people and as long as there are cities, there'll be places. <laughs> there'll be cruising, yeah. Alex. Just before we we close up. Um, where did you meet your non-husband? Online, on gay.com. Oh, online, so modern. Yeah, hmm. so modern, back in 2001. I met my future husband at the Century City Mall on the stairway. Really? Mm-hmm. I did. Um, on that note, thank you all very much for coming, um, and thank you, Alex. And go thank out you, and David. Um, buy this book. Alec, Alex will be signing them um, momentarily, and we'll chat to you with any further questions, and thank you for coming out. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.